Hey everybody, so obviously the podcast has been on a bit of a break, but it's back now and in a big way, I would say. Since it's been a little while though, I feel like I should maybe give you a more general update on all of my projects. If all you want is the main content of this podcast, then just go ahead and skip forward a few minutes. The reason I haven't uploaded an audio podcast is because I've been recording many conversations on YouTube. The interface is just very convenient. It automatically archives. And so it's just a little bit easier for me to do more conversations. What's also been awesome about that is I've been getting a lot of engagement there. So I've wanted to keep that going. And as a result, I kind of just set this aside, unfortunately. So then, kind of out of nowhere, let's just say I became embroiled in some controversies that have suddenly thrown into question my employment status. I'm not really allowed to talk about it, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut for the moment. Although you can easily piece together the basics, I think, from some Google searching if you're so inclined. The reason I'm sharing this with you right now is because these controversies have had the byproduct of opening up some free time for me, let's just say. And whereas many academics in my position would probably be quite sad and stressed out and anxious about the situation that I'm currently in, for me, because I have all of these autonomous intellectual projects already going on all of these different platforms, I am actually quite delighted to have the time to just focus on them exclusively. So one of the things I've been doing over the past couple of weeks is I'm starting to try to get a sense of how many people out there actually really listen to all of my stuff and read my blog posts and really understand and appreciate and value what I'm trying to do. Because, you know, I've been a creative, productive person on the internet for quite some time now, and I know that people have been kind of more and more reading and listening to my stuff. But it's always really hard to know, do I have an audience that's big enough that, you know, who knows, maybe I could really focus on doing all of this stuff, maybe as a long-term project that would eventually supplant my academic career, perhaps even. That's obviously a long shot, and who knows, and it's risky, and that probably is nowhere near close to within reach. However, I mean, who knows? There is such a thing as a professional blogger, and there are people who make work on YouTube full-time, and actually even a small number of people who make more money and have more influence doing that than I even have now as an academic. So basically, it all just kind of came to a head at which, you know, if being a creative person on the internet is going to be inconsistent with my current livelihood and career as an academic, and now I have some free time falling into my lap, then maybe what I'll do is I'll just uh, test right now kind of how many people really value what I'm doing. So I sent out a bunch of messages to people who I know have been following all of my stuff for some time now. And the results I thought were pleasantly surprising. Basically, there was a good handful of people who in my first just initial open-ended messages to them basically said that they, you know, really value what I'm doing and they would be happy to throw some money to, you know, help kind of build up what I'm doing into a more serious long-term kind of project. So basically, I went and I got more feedback from 
readers of my blog and listeners to the podcast and to try and figure out what the ideal model would be that would make people as happy as possible and that might, you know, end up making all the stuff that I'm doing even more effective and significant and even financially sustainable. So basically, this is just a long personal background to the announcement at this point that I now am very happy and proud to say that I have a Patreon account and something like I think 40 people now are, you know, shelling out non-trivial amounts of their hard-earned money to basically encourage me to continue with all these different projects. And frankly, it's more than I would have expected. And so it's really inspiring me to basically say, fuck it. And right now I'm just spending basically uh, full-time jobs worth of effort on building up these projects and making more blog posts and recording more podcasts on YouTube and then also on here, which brings me back to the audio podcast. Because after some initial discussions with my new first influx of patrons, one of the most common requests was that people really do want the audio-only version of all of the live stream conversations I've been doing on YouTube. So over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be converting all of my YouTube live stream conversations into audio-only podcasts and putting them here. So I just want to warn you because you might see over the next few weeks, a relatively high volume of new podcasts being uploaded. Obviously, that's not going to be a sustainable rate. I have a backlog on YouTube that I'm going to be posting in in one big push over the next few weeks. I just want to let you know, you know, obviously not to expect that number of new uploads after, you know, this few weeks are over. All right, so that's about everything I wanted to share with you to update you on what's been going on. If you want to learn more about what I'm thinking and what's actually going on, you can check out my blog. Oh, by the way, I'm not even sure I've told you that yet here, that I have a new domain name for all of the blogging that I've been doing related to the themes that I talk about in the podcast. So the new blog website is theotherlifenow.com, and that's where I'm going to be blogging at a higher volume around all these different topics that I've been thinking about and talking about over the past year or two. That's also going to be a new home for the podcast. So you can find the podcasts there online if you look for them online. Otherwise, yeah, huge thanks to all of my patrons. And obviously, if any of you out there listening want to become a patron, that would be awesome. You're more than welcome to. But I also want to make clear that I don't plan on doing a lot of shilling for that kind of thing. I think I always have and probably always will have a very kind of DIY anarcho-communist kind of attitude and ethic when it comes to doing creative work and just putting out in public and keeping an overwhelming majority of it all totally free to anyone who's interested in it. And if you don't have cash, that is totally cool. Like, I don't want people to feel guilty at all. Um, Even if you really like all of my stuff and enjoy it all of the time, if you just don't have the cash, don't worry about it. Really, I, I really don't care. I really don't mind. I'm just grateful that you're interested in my work. All right, then I think that is about all for the housekeeping notes. I will put links to all of the things I mentioned in the description. And now for my podcast with Joshua Strawn. Josh is a cool dude who is actually one of the first people to reach out to me when my blogging first started to make waves. And 
yeah, he's a, a nice dude, a smart dude, and he and I have some similarities in our, our kind of personal intellectual and political trajectories. So yeah, we decided to do a podcast. He's an interesting guy and has an interesting history. Like he used to be friends with Christopher Hitchens and he's got some interesting stories on that front. And now he's in New Orleans, if I recall correctly. And sounds like he's got a good setup with his with his partner. He, he's a musician primarily. And he's played in a few, I think, quite successful bands. I mean, you know me, I'm not really good at music and I don't really know much about music. So not my strength to be discussing his credentials on that front. But yeah, he's also written for some you know popular outlets such as I think Bust and The Daily Beast, if I recall correctly. So yeah, all around smart dude, interesting dude. And uh, he and I, I think, have a lot in common. So we had a nice and I thought quite interesting conversation about a bunch of things. Hope you enjoy it. So Josh, um, I know a little bit about you for, since we've kind of become friendly on the internet, but I don't actually know too much about you or your project. So maybe we could start with, you could just uh, fill me in on what are you up to right now? Like what are your main projects in life that you're working on right now? I know that you've been a pretty successful musician and a writer and things like that, but what's your story like right now? Um, right now, I guess I'm focused mostly on um, uh, work with two bands. Well, that are that have a background, I guess. Uh, Vara, which is, um, I guess, we started out kind of in the black metal realm. We, uh, but it's it's always been a band sort of comprised of 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 really intensely creative musicians who who operate in a lot of different styles um, and and have a lot of other successful projects as well. Which has kind of almost been a it's been a help and a hindrance because because one of the reasons that we've not done as much as I think we could have by now is because we've, everybody's very busy. Uh, my bass player is, uh, Toby driver. Who's in KO dot. He's played with secret chiefs three. And, uh, he, you know, he, he does things like he did a month long residency at the stone and, and, and he's, he's very, very active. And their guitar player now plays with the, the Canadian death metal band Gorguts. And he, he does dysrhythmia and Sabbath assembly. Everybody's doing tons of things, but anyway, uh, mm. so that, that band is, is we're actually working on our third record and then I'm, I'm still active with as our swan, which is, um, the main, uh, composer and, and singer is, uh, Zora Atash. who's an old, old friend of mine. Um, we used to do a band called religious dam and then we kind of started doing more electronic stuff. Um, we just came off of a two week tour and our, um, we played a couple shows with front two, four, two, the industrial band from Belgium. And, uh, we are now working on our third record. Um, so those are the main things. And then I have a project that I did with an old friend where we're kind of trying to get off the ground. We did a record, we recorded it like, uh, a while back, uh, Jeremy Colasign, who is a, a kind of a synth punk pioneer from the early eighties, uh, was actually a good friend of mine was the first band I was ever in. Uh, we both lived in Roanoke, Virginia in the mountains. And I just met this really interesting Englishman, hmm. <laughs> Englishman with Turkish background who, who, you know, used to tell me about this like synth band he had in Florida in the eighties. And, and in the years since we, we kind of had like a shoegazy band, but in the years since, you know, I went to New York, he still kind of did his own thing. And, and, um, James Murphy, mm. um, from, 
LCD sound system, I believe is who it was, sort of like resurrected his, his you know, futurist, his, his synth punk band. And uh, they, they kind of have been recuperated as, as people have kind of gone back into the back catalog of music like that. Um, okay. And so we hooked back up and we made a, a new record based on a project that we worked on. To, it was actually his solo project from the late 90s. Uh, uh, it was very kind of like dark, jazzy, Scott Walker, Bowie, uh, you know, kind of. It, mm-hmm. So we, we, we're, doing, we're doing that. We made a new record. And, and those are the main things I'm focused on the, uh, musically. And then I have a record label uh, that's just sort of like getting off the ground, I guess. Um, okay, cool. <laughs> so do you, do you work on these projects full time or do you have like a day job or anything or what? They're pretty much full time. I'm, um, since I moved down to new Orleans, uh, my wife is a, is a private chef and I'm pretty much like a mm-hmm. full time, like Mr. Mom style, stay at home dad. Okay. Uh, five year old daughter. So, uh, Oh, cool. When I'm, when I'm, I, I kind of have this like, <laughs> almost like a double life. Cause I really, I really don't do much music here in New Orleans. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm either here kind of doing dad stuff, like volunteering at, at my daughter's school or taking her to the pool and things like that. Or then, then I'm going, you know, on, you know, a way to play shows and go on tour and stuff like that. Okay. That's pretty cool. So all of your music related stuff is kind of based in New York or what? Yeah, it was all based in New York. Um, Cause I, I, I was like, we were talking before, uh, you said you were in Philly for 10 years and you know, kind of the most formative years of your adult life. Like that's, that, right. that was what New York was for me. I, I grew up in Virginia, but I was in New York for, from, from like 2004 to 2014 or something like that. Cool. Okay. So your music work kind of, uh, is what you're doing full time and that sort of pays your half of the family's bills, I guess. And then in the meantime, you uh, raise the daughter when your wife is working. Exactly. That sounds pretty cool. I would actually be pretty open to that kind of setup. We don't have kids or anything yet, but, um, you know, like currently I work a lot as an academic and, you know, it's it's a bit more demanding than I would ideally like uh, my lifestyle to be. I would quite like to rearrange things so that, yeah, I just do my kind of creative intellectual stuff full, full time and uh kind of hang out with a kid i would be uh, does, are you happy with that it sounds pretty cool i love it i mean i've i've definitely like i feel like i i've talked to friends who have had kids you know and, and not everybody take takes to it honestly you know what i mean mm. I, a lot of people do but there's definitely people who have been like ah i love my kid but like it, it's weird i feel weird and you know but for me it's been like pretty much the full opposite um i i really love it i love spending time with my daughter it, like it really uh you know um, as somebody who likes to think and talk, uh, being around a five-year-old or a four-year-old or a three-year-old, uh, <laughs> when they start to talk and ask questions can be really fun. If you have the time, like, as we do, we, we basically have the time, uh, she wants to ask me a question. I want to give her the best answer I can. And when you're trying to phrase things, I don't, I don't really sugarcoat much of the world to her for the most part. And, hmm. and when you're, when you're trying to think of ways to explain answers to, to a kid in, in a way they'll understand it. It's really clarifying. And, um, I think it makes you, uh, it, it refines your thinking in a really interesting way. <laughs> I bet. Put- yeah. That's, that's a beautiful way of putting it. That sounds really cool. Um, when I, I'm sort of curious, when did your music career reach 
kind of uh, the break at which you really kind of were able to consider yourself able to do that full time as kind of your vocation? When did that happen? I mean, just uh, I'll be 100 percent honest. It's 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 really been the result of uh, I have my my wife to thank for it, really, because she's mm. support, she's supportive of me continuing to do it. Uh, it's 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 not like um, I I reached a point where the Spotify checks were coming in. I was like, okay, like this is what I do now. I'm a musician. It's it's really it's more like. Uh, it's more like just a choice. It's like, it's like, if you know, okay. <laughs> it's like, this is something that I just, it, it's the thing I've spent the most of my life working the hardest at. And I've gotten the farthest, you know, uh, in terms of, because like, like obviously we, we got to know each other like through a kind of more academic interests and I have that background and I have those interests, but um, yeah, it's, 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 it's more of a thing where, um, She's she she lets me you know basically do my stuff, okay uh, and put the time, put the time in and put the resources in. It's not it's it's I I do things <laughs> like I said. I mean I I I, I do think I do things that don't really um, invite a ton of uh, the kinds of uh, whatever a, attention and and, and profit. <laughs> Yeah, that 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 other musicians might. So it's it's a it's a slower uphill climb, and I it is it's still I feel like everything is still uphill. Otherwise, I don't, I don't know how long I would keep doing it if it was. I mean, I would always do it, but I don't know how long I would keep pursuing it at this level if it wasn't kind of on an upward slope, you know. But it's a slow one. It's a slow upward slope. Interesting. And when you say upward slope, you mean it in a good way because that could be described as like resistance or you know like I mean, I an upward slope meaning hard but you're saying it gets it gets better as you do it a little bit of both yeah i mean i mean for instance like we just did two two almost sold out shows with front 242 who's like the band i grew up with like i love i mean they're like industrial like electronic music pioneers you know so right. like and, and i just i i just kind of locked in um uh agreement to, to do uh to to work with one of my my favorite uh I mean, one of my favorite artists of all time is Scott Walker, but this, he's worked with this producer for since, since 1986, I think when his work got really sort of more weird and avant-garde. And so, uh, he's going to mix the new Vara record. So, you know, it's like these new things that, that those are, those are markers of success to me. You know, it's, it's like, so uh -huh. as, as those kinds of things keep rolling in, you know, like those uh -huh. things that excite me, um, and they're not, at, they're not currently, you know, uh, driving, <laughs> driving profit, but, um, you know, they drive, they drive me to do what I do, I guess. Okay. Yeah. I think I totally hear you. So it's like, there's really no point at which you became, you know, a successful professional musician. It's just, you've always been really interested in music and you've always worked hard on it and your wife just gives you the support that allows you to do that, whatever good or bad might come from it. Yeah, essentially. I mean, I, I guess that there, there's also a point, but there's a point before the, you know, I was married when I was living in New York where, you know, I think I, like I've played with, with musicians before who, you know, had pretty, pretty good jobs, like say mm. in like design or, you know, different, different aspects of, of like, you know, New York corporate world, you know, 
and they're good musicians and they're artistic people. But like, these were people who were like, uh, you know, I really like, I really like playing in a band, but I definitely can't like leave my job because it's a really good job. You know, I, I, I think mm-hmm. if anything, I would say it was the point at which I made the decision, like, I'm not going to try to get a 70,000 year job working in New York. I'm going to get another band and I'm going to like, you know, hustle and starve and think, you know, just those, I think, I think it's the decisions that sort of like cement, (laughs) this is what you are and this is what you're going to do. It's a choice, you know what I mean? So, right. So when did you decide that? Do you think, how do you, when do you date, where were you and, and when was that? I, I think it was around, I don't know. I think it was around the, the breakup of, of, uh, of my, my, I had a post-punk band called Blacklist. And, um, after that is when I started playing with the guys in Vara and when Zora and I started doing, uh, uh, religious to damn. And, and, um, I was just in a lot of, I was playing a lot of music. Um, and I was just like, this is what I'm going to do. I was, you know, I'm not going to try to do, uh, and that uh, there was also, that was also the time at which I kind of realized I needed to make it a, a choice between like academics and writing and, and my intellectual interests and music, because I, I, I was, I was so fit, like kind of like straddling the fence. And I felt like at the time, both things were, were interfering with one another. It was like, it was like, I was too, I was talking into There was too much intellectualism going into the music for, for the, for the fans, for most fans to really enjoy. It was, it was, I think a lot of people were kind of like, "Eh, it's just a little too eggheaded. And, and then on the academic or intellectual side, it was like, I was always this rock guy. You know what I mean? It was like people Mm. kind of knew my shit, but like, you know, (laughs) I wasn't, it, it, there was always this sort of like sense that like, Oh, you're just, he's, he's the, he's the musician who hangs out and, you know, and that's, that, I mean, that's kind of what I decided to, you know, permanently be, I guess, uh, even though I keep writing and keep talking, but. Um, right. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Well, that's a nice segue into maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your academic background because you do, I guess you do kind of bring a fairly, let's say intellectual kind of, angle to everything you do. Is that fair to say? I know that you have an academic background. Maybe you could just uh, recapitulate that for us. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I moved, well, I, I originally moved to New York after a period, um, the period of, I, I was kind of doing like in the field political activism and organizing for a while. And then I kind of had some bad experiences and decided to go back to school. And what, but what, what was really interesting to me at the time and it's funny because it's become such a huge issue now is it was critical theory. I mean, and I was, mm-hmm. I was into people like I, I was picking up books like, uh, welcome to the desert of the real. This is like shortly after September 11th, you know? And I'm like, I'm like, what is the, you know, how do I, I, I didn't understand how to read it. And then I got really, <laughs> I was like, well, okay, well, what I need to you know to read it. And I was like, I need to read Marx and I need to read Lacan. And then I got really into Lacan and I decided I was going to, you know, I was going to go to New York and I was going to study, like Lacanian psychoanalysis and go to school and, and, you know, pursue this, you know, this, uh, area of, of, uh, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and, sure. Uh, okay. So this is right after September, September 11th. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So early two thousands, you get into critical theory and you, you, are you already playing music or no, no, no. music was a, a something I'd done kind of in my early 
I mean, I've always played music. I was in bands in high school, bands, you know, out of college and things like that. Uh, but the, like at the, t- at that time I was like, I was like, I'm going to, you know, become a psychoanalyst and, and a philosopher, you know, essentially was what I wanted to do. And, um, I was going to like, uh, meet meetings of like the, the, the whole like culture of like Lacanian analysis in, in, uh, mm-hmm. in New York is really interesting and uh, weirdly uh, underground is the wrong way to put it. it it's Kabbalish. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, these little, you know, these, these like, little meetings with people, you know, people are in from Brazil or what, you know, all these, and they're very, uh, eccentric people, you know what I mean? Uh, so sure. I, I was attending all these seminars and sitting there taking notes for like, you know, eight hours and, and things like that. And then, and then I just like literally kind of fell into a band. I had my, my girlfriend, uh, was like, Hey, I have some friends who, who, who want to do the same stuff that you like and you should play with them. So, okay. Interesting. So, all right. So, uh, you go to New York, you're interested in critical theory and psychoanalysis. And so you go to uh, grad school there. Is that right? No, I was undergrad. Um, gotcha. yeah, it was, a in, in the new school, but they're very flexible, uh, with their, with their classes. Like I was taking grad classes as part of my, um, undergrad. <laughs> Okay. They're they're basically like you know you need uh, it, it was a liberal arts degree. They're like you need X amount of classes, um, uh, X amount of credits, um, and if you want to take this you know like graduate level course in Hegel, uh, and you can hack it, you can use it towards your degree. <laughs> okay, cool. So you're studying, I guess, pretty advanced stuff, and it's only there that you then start to get into music. Yeah, get back in. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, and so that. I guess then you gradually kind of decided uh, to move away from the academics and, and invest fully into music eventually, I guess. Well, I kind of wanted it at the, at, you know, at the beginning, I kind of wanted it to be, because I loved bands like um, the Manic Street Preachers, you know, who were, who were constantly like, like uh, dropping all these like literary references, references to like political, you know, philosophy and, okay. and revolutionary politics and things like that. Um, so I had I had always kind of envisioned uh, a, a new permutation of that, and I wanted to put to sort of like bring that together. You know what I mean? Okay, interesting. And is that still how you see your project? Or no, I mean, no, not really. No, I mean, I think I, I think I kind of like experimented with that with Blacklist, uh, okay. and I, I, I feel like the record I wrote then, like in terms of like politics, is it's in a, in a lot of ways, it's it's only just now reached a point where it's like okay. I, because like as the years would go by, I was like, this all still applies. This all still applies. You know, like I mean, my my essential like critique and like worldview that I articulated on that record, uh, I just kind of stood for for a while, and and only now I think might stand stand to be updated. But I mean, I, I think I kind of like uh, moved further into like realms where uh, with Vara, where I was trying to to do more show don't tell kind of like more poetic. Uh, uh, diversions, you know, I mean, there's, it's, it still ends up being informed in some way by, by my academic interests, because say for instance, like the first Vara record was, it goes off and it's like a psychedelic metal that, you know, journey into like this, like ghost world of some, you know, but it's also like yeah. the record was really informed by like a sense of like the loss of secrets, the lot, like the loss of, uh, um, the, the, the intense, 
visibility culture, I guess, you know what I mean? Uh, so it was yeah. the result of like the imagining of, of secrets, I guess, you know? So there, there, there are like academic foundations, but it's never like, I have an idea. I'm going to write this like political record. You know, it's like, it's just yeah. because I'm just, because I'm like filling myself with those ideas. And that's, that's what prompts my creative process, I guess. So, yeah, for sure. But I don't really do that. Not, not in the same way, not, not, not with, not the way I did it with Blacklist. Right. Okay. Interesting. Do you still read philosophy and theory and stuff like that still, or no, not so much these days? Oh yeah. Tons. I mean, I, I, felt, oh, yeah. I, I, I think I stumbled across, I stumbled across your work. I mean, I have an, I have an ongoing, it was this sort of like interest, I guess, in, in, in the kind of music I do and in the philosophy wasn't just me. It was, it was really, it had, um, the the weird records community in New York and the weird party that's W I E R D uh, was spearheaded by uh, my my one of my closest friends Peter Schoolworth who's a who's a painter he's a successful you know fine artist painter and um, he was we he, we were always in you know talking philosophy um, a lot of you know a lot of once you get into I I don't know how many of your listeners know but I mean there's definitely a, a an aspect of fine art where people are are kind of like speaking in theory, you know what I mean? Like they're setting yeah. up their, their, their work, um, uh, that way. And so he went to Cal arts and he was very conversant in, in a lot of the, the same stuff, um, and like the same music, you know? So we, it, it was this weird moment where, um, these people who liked like weird dark music, like lots of like, you know, like European dark music that was undiscovered in the eighties because of, in the West or, or not in the West, but in the, in the, in America, because it wasn't English speaking. Uh, we, you know, we had this party where we would play this music and we would, when we would get together and get drunk at the party, we would be talking about Sluderdijk or Zizek or, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, totally. That's awesome. It's always been part. It's always been a part, I guess. Yeah. Fascinating. So when in all of this, did you get into politics because I think for listeners who might not know, I think one of the things that you and I sort of have in common is that at various points in our lives, we were both very involved in kind of radical left culture. And then for different reasons, or perhaps for similar reasons, maybe we'll get to this. uh, We perhaps became somewhat disillusioned and gravitated somewhat away from those cultures, I think in some sense, obviously I'm not putting words in your mouth, but when did you get into politics? And maybe you could tell, Tell us your side of that story a little bit more. Well, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I was like always kind of like into radical politics as a result of certain aspects of my upbringing, which which are really disparate in a way when I think back on them. Because you know, my parents went through a period where they were very um, kind of in the eighties, where they were messing with a lot of Republican uh, religious right seven hundred club sort of stuff. But mentally, I mean, okay. that's not really who they, it's, it's, it's almost something they were trying to do, I guess, you know, like in the, in the sixties and seventies, they were more, uh, they were a little more free <laughs> and, um, right. and, but, but so I guess what I'm getting at is, is that like this, like, so I would have, I had these kind of like conservative, like, and religious upbringing, but at the same time, my mom is like very into like this idea that we have like native American heritage and she's taking us to like native American reservations on, uh, for trip for family trips and telling us about, you know, that, that white settlers committed genocide against the native Americans. And okay. so there's a very, there's a strong sort of like streak of like criticality of, of, you know, the white mm-hmm. Western colonizer, this kind of thing. So, 
Um, and I think, I think ultimately, you know, that bled into like teenage angst and like rage against the machine and nine inch nails and, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff that I got into. And from there it was just, you know, I think I was always fascinated in the, in the idea that I was politically interested, but also like into like pop culture and, and music culture and stuff like that. And I was always, I'm forever, I think, kind of trying to resolve those two things, those uh, make them fit together, I guess. Right. Okay. So, but, but so it's been, it's, it's really always been there. Um, but it, it became, it became more intense during, you know, the Bush era, the, the Iraq war, um, nine 11, things like that. Right. And so before we started recording, you told me a little bit about when you were really actively involved in organizing, but then something, I guess, kind of gave way and you moved away from that a little bit. Maybe you could tell that story. Help me understand what happened there. Oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think I, I had spent a lot of time just sort of like in my basement reading Karl Marx and stuff, like that. <laughs> and uh, and I was like eager to to to, to take it seriously. And uh, so I went. I moved to uh, Philadelphia to become a community organizer uh, for Acorn before all the Obama mess and and stuff like that. And I did that for for. A couple months, uh, but it was very intense. Couple months, it was like literally having like sometimes twenty to thirty political conversations with strangers every single day. Now, wait, real quick, were you kind of like already friends with a lot of kind of lefty people, and you kind of like just gradually kind of shifted towards this line of work, or or was it more abrupt and you were kind of like, man, I I just really want to get out there and, and change the world for the better. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up and I'm gonna move and I'm gonna commit to doing this because the way you tell it, it it sounds like very abrupt it sounds like the latter it sounds like you just kind of decided you really wanted to become an activist and you took some sort of plunge but is that how it happened or was it a little bit more gradual and you kind of just found yourself in in those circles well i think i had i think a lot of my friends had similar interests and sympathies and um you know i was definitely getting books from a buddy of mine who was um in college, you know, he was, he was, he was studying stuff like, uh, Baudrillard and Derrida and, you know, the different critical theory, uh, in college. And, uh, but I think for me, it was like, I got, I got really into, you know, as I was sort of like, you know, I mean, I started reading Baudrillard. I was like, I, I have no background in Marx. I need to read Marx. So I go and I read Marx and, you know, I read the manifesto and I mean, you know, these kinds of things are in, you know, this is also around the time like Naomi Klein and no logo and Radiohead and this like, yeah, sort of bubbling up in the kind of like the, the, the Seattle protests and, and things like that are happening. Yeah. And so, so it was really around that period that I think I, it just like, I, I had friends who cared about it and who cared about the same things, but I got really intense about it. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I'm the one, yeah. I was the one who was like, this is what I, you know, I'm going to walk the walk and I'm going to get out there and I'm going to participate and be in the streets and, you know, th those kinds of things. Uh, was there something in particular that really kind of triggered that for you that made you want to really get serious about it? Like an event or some sort of realization or what was it? I don't really think so. I think it was just, it was just becoming deep, more deeply fascinated or, or passionate about it. And then sort of realizing that there was, you know, I, my passion yeah. for it wasn't going to be fulfilled by continuing to sit around reading about it, I guess. Right. And so this also would be before you got into music, seriously. But, yeah, well, before yeah, before I was doing stuff in New York. But I mean, I, I, right. I was doing music at the time still. Yeah. You were. Okay. 
but you weren't quite as serious, I, I guess, about it. Yeah, it was a small town, so we just we you know we had our bands and we made our records, but it was like it wasn't on the level that I that I did it after I moved to New York. Right. Okay. Cool. So, um, tell me a little bit more about how your thinking evolved as you were kind of uh, as you learned the ropes of activism and saw kind of what goes on there. Well, I, I kind of had a bad experience, I guess. Uh, I mean, well, I think initially the the experience of organizing was pretty uh, is still a lasting one because because when you're a white kid reading critical theory and marxism in your basement uh it's a huge <laughs> hugely different thing from like knocking on the doors of like mostly people of colors houses you know uh sort of being like i want to talk to you about politics can we get together and sort of like build a movement and and sort of right. power in your neighborhood you know and right uh the in incredible array of, of responses. I mean, I had, I had, I had elderly women who were like part of the civil rights movement who, who were the sort of like backbone and like, you know, they wanted to sit around and talk to me for a long time and they would like be like super thankful. Like it's so cool that you're out here doing this, you know, okay. there were people who were, who would just be like, you know, people just need to get it together. Like it's not, it's not the government's fault. You know, there's, there would be a lot of like running up against religion. Like, well, you know, if God, you know, we don't need to be political because things are just this way because God wants it that way, that kind of stuff. So yeah, running into all the, like just all the different kinds of responses that you can possibly imagine is a really intense, like shock to the system of this, like kid who's just been sitting in his basement reading books, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah. then, you know, my, my hardcore sort of like labor movement passions are intact and I, I discover while I'm there that some of the people who are training me were also some of the people who were flown uh, by the organization to Seattle to cross the picket line when workers in Seattle decided oh, we need safer working conditions. They're not meeting our working conditions. We're organizers. Let's organize. <laughs> and um, I thought that was like intensely hypocritical and I got super pissed off and youthful rage and went and filed a report with the IWW and left for Pittsburgh and, and ended up going back to college, you know? Uh, Interesting. So that was what made you sort of feel like, all right, I'm not into this anymore. I need to go back to school. Well, it was, it was like, it was like, okay, like I've tried, I've, I've been out in the field for a little bit and obviously, you know, I I don't, I don't claim for a second that my little six months is, is, is some sort of like great representative sample. Uh, sure. But it was, it was a, influential and uh i yeah. decided it, it didn't change my path or like disillusion me to the left in general but uh -huh. it, it it made me decide okay i'm gonna i'm gonna go back to the academic end you know because I've, I've i've read on my own i've gone out into the field now i would like to to sort of like pursue these ideas in a more formal academic setting you know so i was looking for for that and that's what i that's so i, I went to school and i and it's kind of funny because we're having all these debates now about um you know whether or not there's there's liberal bias in in, in the humanities and in in uh, liberal arts and things like that. And I was like, right. <laughs> I've always been like, it, I see these people see people who are like raging, like it's so wrong to say that. I'm like, I'm like, well, I discovered that if I wanted to study, if I a Marxist want to go to school and study these kinds of things, I go to sociology departments and I go to liter literary departments, uh -huh. humanities departments. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like. I don't know. Yeah, that's actually where we study the stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. So interesting. Yeah, right. So, I mean, what's your read on 
the experience you had with the union? I mean, what did you, what was sort of the larger lesson that you drew from that? Like, how do you, based on your experience and your dissatisfaction with some of the hypocrisy, um, I mean, how, how did you process that into larger conclusions? Like what is your, what is your current take on the organized kind of institutional unionist sort of left-wing projects? How do you interpret them? Oh, wow. That's a really interesting, heavy question. I, I, I guess, I guess looking back on it, I, I take it as a kind of, I mean, I think the best book I ever read about the, about, you know, left-wing politics, both a, whether as a critique or as a representation, uh, one of the best is Darkness at Noon. And it's the book that I wish I could give every like leftist sympathizer today because I think the basic lesson of that book is um, that or or that that takeaway or that that particular critique of the Soviet project is that when you have ut- utopia in mind, you'll do any evil to accomplish it. And that's not going to, you know, that's essentially not going to work. Um, And I, I I think that was just a sort of like miniaturized, you know, I I think when you get into like, like organized, like left-wing politics, like you, you run into these instances where you see, you see people like compromising because, because they think that that's what has to be, you know, like, right. They think that the larger picture justifies the, the more short term, transgressions you know what i mean and yeah uh, you know I, I i think that that the takeaway for me was has always been i think a more intense sympathy with left critics of the left where people who sort of like see what's wrong with their side from the inside mm-hmm. i guess yeah for sure that that's an interesting way that you put it because it's quite convergent with something that i've been saying for some time now which is I'm very interested in the kind of Frankfurt school critique of instrumental rationality. I think that that kind of really nails one of the crucial problems with almost all kind of contemporary Western, you know, oppositional political culture. Mm -hmm. It's like the way that I read Adorno and Horkheimer and Marcuse is that, you know, I think, I think what they really were on the trail of is how, a basically kind of strategic rational orientation to the world, you know, and by instrumental rationality, I just mean the the basic orientation in which one is trying to achieve certain ends through, you know, optimized means to achieve those ends, that basic kind of rational viewpoint is it's is basically itself part and parcel with the all of the horrors of capitalism that people are trying to kind of correct for. And so it's like, that's I think very convergent with what you were saying that it's, it's like the consequentialist uh, orientation you were describing. Like if you think that what you're trying to do is really good in the long run, you can basically justify any number of short run dishonesties or manipulations or uh, whatever it might be, or hypocrisies, whatever it might be. You can justify with, with a large enough kind of end goal that's noble enough. You can basically justify any number of ethically problematic, uh, you know, means to that end. And I think that, ex- a, I think that really, no. helped, like, I, I think the Frankfurt school in particular saw this perhaps more clearly than many others. And yeah, I think that so long as you try to have a, a political culture along those lines, you're, you're bound to just reproduce like all of the horrors of capitalism. In some sense that is capitalism. The capitalism, right. capitalism is the generalization of, 
precisely that kind of rationality to to you know an absolute kind of social dominance. And so it's like you're not going to overthrow capitalism. You're not even going to modify capitalism so long as you're operating on the same kind of instrumental rationality. That's a really fascinating connection. And I think it, it kind of it, it makes me think also of, of, of what is kind of my more recent political preoccupation, which is much more like technologically oriented, I guess, because I worked uh, in New York when I was trying to, you know, just pay the bills. I, I ended up getting a job with a viral, like a, an ad research firm where I was in charge of like viral and analyzing viral marketing. So I've, I've been, I've been sort of, I feel like watching the rise of, um, well, I did. I mean, for eight years, I was kind of watching uh, the rise of viral technologies, you know, applications and, and softwares. Uh, at the same time, those were beca- becoming like like one of the primary grounds for like political discourse and and conversation. And so, you know, mm-hmm. when you talk about like the, the the Frankfurt School distinction between instrumental reason and reflective reason, I definitely would posit that that. There's there's a there's a logistical sort of like motive or 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 there's a there's a logistical outcome really where where reflective reason is actively discouraged by these platforms that we're that we're using <laughs> because For the, sure. because reflection is you know uh, by by almost by its definition requires like the time that these platforms don't have time for <laughs> right well you know what. I mean, in some sense, you're you're totally right. But in another sense, if you think about it, I mean, contemporary digital communication platforms actually can provide radically kind of anti-capitalist, anti-instrumental spaces. I think the problem is, or the question is simply, like, what are you trying to do? I think that as soon as you're trying to, quote unquote, change the world or quote unquote, you know, achieve some sort of strategically um, optimized goal of any kind, even if it's noble, even if it's like overthrow capitalism or end oppression. As lo- so long as you're trying to like achieve some instrumental task, then all of a sudden, kind of the the space for objective reason and and disinterested reflection gets kind of squelched to zero. Like all of your Facebook posts are going to be kind of like vaguely dissimulated kind of instances of of posturing you know all of your all of your blog posts are going to uh, find it impossible to say anything very interesting or honest or at all valuable it's like so long as you're like subordinating yourself to some instrumental purpose then yes all of these digital communication channels become increasingly like horrifyingly vapid and manipulative and empty and exploitative so so i think that's that's definitely go that's definitely going on kind of capitalism is exerting this increasingly generalized cultural pressure across these platforms to make all of our communication kind of shittier and shittier but if you're able to simply uh divorce yourself from that instrumental rationality you do actually enter onto a totally different type of plane you know i think this is like why Deleuze and Guattari are, you know, they have this distinction between smooth and striated spaces. Like I think it, it, you, there are kind of major qualitative distinctions of experience that one can kind of enter into or away from based on kind of the, the basic 
kind of premises of, of your orientation or whatever. And so, yeah, I think like you can kind of exit the instrumental rationality mindset and then the internet becomes this still glorious playground for freedom and creativity. And so you you do actually see today, alongside all of the, the trends you're talking about, you do actually see also today the emergence of some like really extraordinary and quite brilliant, a totally independent kind of anti-institutional radical intellectual work taking place on the internet today. And so I think that it's a very fascinating kind of to, to juxtapose that to the, you know, increasingly kind of brain dead and and vapid tendencies that you that you described before. I think it's just a difference of, you know, the the orientation that you that you bring to these to these platforms. And 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 it's another reason why I think instrumental rationality is is really a key category or a key um, kind of idea that names how humans can either get sucked in to the problems really badly, but also how they can kind of avert, you know, the, the ways in which capitalism like so suffocates us and colonizes our brains. Like if you can just be, you can escape the the clutches of instrumentalism, suddenly everything looks very different. I'm kind of ranting at this point though. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I definitely find myself, you know, constantly needing to reassert that I, that I've, uh, because I, I, in a sense, it's, it's like, when you when you talk critically about like what's going on with with like digital culture, uh, social media, politics, things like that, you often get like, well, there's all these other, you know, there's there's great stuff happening. I I, I do believe mm-hmm. there's great stuff happening, and I, I never mean to sort of like make it sound like the internet's bad or or like it's it's, imp- sure. it's impossible to do anything great. It's it's one of these things where I feel like we're dealing with like a like a hegemony of 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 techno positive. It's, it's, it feels it feels ideological to me. It feel it feels like um, you're constantly having to sort of like push against the, the notion from I think that I think was a lot more popular, you know, probably ten five years ago that everything's great and everything's going to turn out. You know, this is going to be definitely like liberating and fantastic. It's like, but I mean, just just yeah. just from where I stood, just from where I sat, um, sort of like like so I'm I'm doing PR for bands. I'm writing pol- writing about politics and publications. I'm um, I'm studying viral marketing for an ad research firm. So all these things sort of like I'm I'm sort of seeing the same phenomena from the same perspective from from different perspectives. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, my takeaways are a lot of them are negative, but that doesn't mean that my ta- like my my sense of of the entire field is doom laden or, or, or that I, that I don't think fascinating stuff happens, you know, obviously I found sure. work. I mean, I mean, I think we both follow some pretty crazy weirdos on Twitter, you know, who like, yeah, yeah. you know, like it, it, Definitely. they can kind of blow your mind sometimes. Um, right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, how should I put this? Like I, I actually am extremely pessimistic about the effects of contemporary digital technological changes and kind of human mental capacities. I mean, I, I, I'm as bearish on it all as, as anyone. I mean, I think that the internet, at least, you know, as a, as a phenomenon, as a consumer kind of phenomenon. And so at least insofar as people, the way that people actually use the internet, apart from its possible theoretical value and the, the, the more interesting ways that we might be able to use it on the whole, the overwhelming majority of 
the ways that people use the internet, it's like it's just a total IQ shredder. I think it's like it's it's totally destroying uh, everyone's brains and emotions, like really really badly for for the most part. Um, uh, very very. I'm very open to that argument as well. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm definitely not like, I'm definitely not like a cyber booster. Like, you know, the internet's going to bring democracy and creative flourishing for everyone. It definitely doesn't look like that at all. I, I think uh, the, the effects at least so far have been overwhelmingly perverse. Uh, my comment was mostly just to point out though, that if thoughtful people want to try to think about it honestly and creatively, then I think that there is a way of of seeing the contemporary kind of digital vista as potentially very liberating, and uh, I just think that it requires like some some intellectual maneuvers to kind of unravel it. Because I do think that basically the re- one of the reasons why I think instrumental rationality is such an important category is that basically it, it plants its tenor hooks everywhere. It's like really hard to not get sucked into a kind of instrumental exploitative relationship to to one's environment. I mean, I, I the reason I'm interested in Deleuze is because I think like one way of understanding him is that he's basically trying as hard as he possibly can to create concepts and create like basically an entire sort of uh, view of the world um, and and a sense of its opportunities and possibilities, a sense of how to create new spaces and new dynamics that fundamentally escape kind of the clutches of instrumental rationality that escape, you know, um, kind of the, the mental tenterhooks that capitalism tends to kind of plant in us, uh, you know, on an every, on an everyday basis. Like, I do think that we can learn how to escape those. Um, and I think that the digital spaces are an extremely kind of potentially emancipatory, uh, opportunity for for doing so. I think they present spaces for doing so. I think overwhelming majorities of humans are either not interested or not able or not willing or whatever. I don't know what exactly, but most people are do not seem to be pursuing these lines of of possibility. But I do think that they're there. And and I guess ultimately, I think that it's within our powers to better kind of theorize like these possibilities for emancipation. And make them to share them with each other. Like, I think we can teach each other how to be more free, basically. And I think that that's mm-hmm. kind of like we we can develop actual know-how, actual kind of almost technical knowledge about human being, about how human beings can kind of escape the tenterhooks of, of capitalism, basically, and figure out ways to be more radically creative and free, basically what people have always had in mind when they talk about emancipation or flourishing. Like... I still believe in that. I still believe we can figure that out and we can, we can discover that knowledge and we can share and transmit that knowledge more widely. And so, yeah, in some way, I guess maybe where I, the reason why I'm, I'm kind of going on at length about these is because it now sort of brings me to uh, perhaps the larger point that was at stake in, you know, in the earlier part of our conversation, which is that, you know, for all intents and purposes, in this sense, I'm still a radical leftist, you know, like I still believe in, revolutionary cultural politics i still want uh you know to 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 spread and maximize emancipation and flourishing as as equally and radically as possible and would you do you still have those kinds of ideas or ideals or interests for sure for sure i mean i mean i think i think for me where this kind of gets to i think one of the things about the pro the problems with like what's happening to 
politics and people's brains uh, on the internet, I have a pretty interesting, I guess, experience. I, because at the new school, I became friends with Christopher Hitchens. So we're talking about like left okay. critics of the left and things like that. And I don't, I, I understand, I understand a lot of the, the reasons that people dunk on him, yeah. you know, posthumously, some of the, the his, his positions on the war and things like that. The thing was, so for and I've had a I've, I've had a couple of other experiences like this um, in in music culture too. But but the thing with Hitchens was sort of at the be, like it was happening at the time. I, I think for me, he's a much more interesting character historically because of what I know about because of what I was sort of like what I know of him and what I was watching happen uh, on the level of like um, how we extrapolate an idea on the internet and how we, and, and how certain things can become, can, mm-hmm. you know, take on a life of their own. It's like, it's like, this, this is a person who a couple of weeks ago, like we we're again having the, the debate over whether or not he would have been for Trump. Like this is <laughs> the most absurd things to anybody who ever sat in a room with him, you know, and it, and it comes not from people who have actually generally from people who have read him. It comes from people who have who have uh, done a certain kind of like learn cultural learning. Um, yeah, his name comes up. You know what I mean? Yeah, and for sure. If anything, like the the best the best guide to how he would have handled like how he would have seen the current moment is is uh, his episode I, I, um, getting beat up over defacing what was essentially. Uh, and it's escaping me now. Lebanese, I think, swastika. Like okay. I, I mean, his his thing was like swastikas exist for one one reason only to be defaced and destroyed. You know what I mean? This okay. is a guy who's like <laughs> probably more Antifa than than most people would even most of some of his fans would even want to uh, to say at this at this point. Just in terms of an ideology, I mean, th- he would have been deeply disgusted at Charlottesville, and 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 he would have hated Donald Trump. You know what I mean? But but so. There's, but the real person and the real politics he had compared to the effigy that he's become and the things, things he's come to symbolize and the, the sort of like what are, I would say, you know, kind of like dogmas of my side about like what is the correct position to have about Christopher Hitchens are absurd. Like they're false. You know what I mean? Interesting. Um, Interesting. So, um, so why do people think he would have supported Trump? Like, what's the idea there? I don't actually know Hitchens' uh, work very well, so you have to fill me in. Like, well, what what is the claim that he would? Why why do people think he would be a Trump supporter? Well, because so, because after he was he was basically you know in my view um, when I was when I was kind of cutting my teeth on the left in the late nineties, Noam Chomsky was the godfather. You know, he was the guy. Like you had Noam Chomsky and you had Naomi Klein were were the main figures. Hitchens was kind of like a little bit like more of a marginal figure, but he was kind of a rising star. You know, he was like bringing like charges of war crimes against Henry Kissinger on the cover of Harper's and he was writing for the nation. And he was, he was very, you know, kind of like, you know, cool, swearing, drinking, smoking cigarettes sort of person. Okay, yeah. And, and then nine 11 happened and he was sort of galvanized um, against like, what he saw as, you know, uh, a hyper conservative theocratic movement. And you had this, especially at the, at like right after nine 11, you had this like knee jerk sort of uh, like third world kind of like France Fanon defense of, of, of the, of the attack, you know, and which he thought was in 
disgusting, you know, and in his, in his, the pages of his magazine. So he left and he kind of came, he, he, he was galvanized to be, to, to take on what he saw as like, you know, to, to focus on the critique of religion. And he was especially harsh, you know, towards Islamic theocracy. So it became this thing of like, okay, here's, you know, he's, he's right. You know, the, the, the conflation of, of the critique of Islam and, and Islamic terrorism with, with racism, you know what I mean? So he became, right. he became the turncoat. Uh, he became the, the neocon, you know, when he supported the war and things like that. So, right. uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's very, it's the quote unquote right thinking position to have about Hitchens on the left is that he's essentially a disgusting, like neo neocon turncoat uh, racist, uh, right, you know, and and I think Murtaza Hussein from the Intercept um, made a comment about like when when Trump was running that he was it was like Christopher Hitchens but from New York or something like that, you know. So that there's been this this thing of like if you want to if you want to sort of attack this culture of like white male bigotry, you know, whatever he's he's a terrible figure. <laughs> right. Okay. I see. I see what you're saying. Right. So thanks. That was a good reminder and summary of, of kind of his story and how people see him uh, and how he's kind of used as a symbol that people fight over. Um, you know, I mean, there is something to it though. Like I, I can understand what, what people might be thinking because in some sense, I mean, the left definitely has become way more, how should I put this sort of exacting about what it's, you know, public representatives have to kind of think or say, and, you know, that the kind of like more old school, badass kind of intellectual who, you know, says what they think and doesn't really give a fuck. Like the type of person I think Hitchens probably was to some degree, you know, that type of person kind of isn't really allowed on the left as much anymore. Do you know what I mean? So like he, he, he might not be a Trump supporter if he was alive and working today, but he probably wouldn't be like, you know, a very recognizable kind of like face of the left either, you know? No, I, even in his, in his later years, I mean, he, he left the left. I mean, he wouldn't, he, right. he, he would, you know, he could out marks any, any Marxist in a, in a discussion. And I saw him do it, you know, we definitely like in, in classrooms, you know, and it was, it was, it was always a, a fun experience because he already had this, this sort of like growing perception and the, 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 you know, the, the student body at the, at the new school is largely left lefty activist, you know what I mean? So th- these kids would come and they would be like ready to sort of like take him to the hoop, you know what I mean? Right. And okay. always come away having more respect for him and being impressed by essentially how he could sort of like using the, the principles and the, and the body of work that, that they, you know, claimed make them succeed you know not see it another way but like realize that he's not full of shit you know what i mean right. like <laughs> well you're definitely making me want to catch up on the work of hitchens because now now i'm quite curious you know and really i think the the bigger qu- the question that's more interesting is not why you know hitchens became really critical of islam but to me the real puzzle is why is the contemporary left so sympathetic to islam like that's a puzzle i I mean it's not it's not at all obvious why there wouldn't be a more vocal kind of left-wing faction that's highly critical of islam just because you know traditional political islam 
is highly, you know, conservative, uh, especially in, 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 you know, culturally, you know, so it, it's, it's quite fascinating to me that there's not a more sizable group of people like Hitchens who kind of have a kind of left wing background or, or temperament to some sense, but who are really concerned and opposed to the creep of Islam. Like it's, it's fascinating that you don't see more of that. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I feel like that that sort of those dividing lines were drawn back then with him and people like Paul Berman, who were, you know, basically like old school thinkers of the left, you know, like Paul Berman was a historic, I think mainly a left historian. And, you know, Hitchens spent his whole life on the left. But I think I think I think what happened was that you had the, like, the left is essentially now when you talk to, to any like average, like young leftist, like, like ask them what they read, yeah. you know what I mean? And you're going to get, you're going to get a lot of continental philosophy and you're going to get a lot of critical theory. They're going to tell you they read Deleuze. They're going to tell you they read, you know, they read, but, but have problems with Zizek, you know, all these kinds of things. And, and, but, but you know, Foucault, uh, is, is huge. And, and yeah. I think, I, th- I think that, um, I think that as that current moved into a more dominant space on the left, the idea that like, as that you weren't allowed to like tell other people, you know, you're not, you're, you're basically not allowed to critique value systems. I think. uh, That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I think it became a thing of like, but you know, people are fine with criticizing the hyper conservative misogynistic elements that come from religion in their own culture, but um, not okay with doing it in other cultures. And what I've personally sort of noticed is like, I used to back like, way back when kind of say, look, if this was happening in your backyard, you would call it out. You know, you would hate, you would hate this movement if it was not, if it was not articulated in, in Islamic and, and terms, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. It was articulated in Christian terms by white people. And it, I think we've almost come around. I would, I would, I would sort of like critique that hypocrisy, but I think we've actually come around to where they, they kind of made that allowance for so long of like conservative <laughs> religious politics for others that um, when you try to make it now in terms of like white people and Christianity in like America and even the UK, you start running into a lot of the same, <laughs> a lot of the same uh, defenses. And, and, you know, it, especially if you're doing it at the level of religion, you know what I mean? There's, there's, there's a broad, you know, if you're taking that tack and sort of saying this comes from religion then you are veering towards being a Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, white male, you know, atheist, bigot, etc. Like it's, it's just, it's very, it's very stock. It's very kind of like, like reactive, you know what I mean? Um, which kind of goes yeah. back to, to what I, I feel like these are shortcuts that um, it kind of goes back to what you're talking about d- digital culture and reflection. It's like, I feel like these are shortcuts that, that essentially people embrace in order to sort of, streamline their thinking <laughs> you know what oh, I mean? yeah for sure um, to reduce complexity i mean yeah heuristics we might call them yeah for sure and you know i mean that's 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 just been my experience i mean i i've always again straddled a weird line my 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 bandmate in religious Saddam is afghan muslim uh we dated for six years uh long 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 ago uh mm. Uh, we still have a band together. We're like family, but like, you know, so I've seen Hitchens, the quote unquote Islamophobe, like at a table with my then Muslim girlfriend. <laughs> and right. um, so it's, it's like, 
you're fighting against these, these when you're, when we're talking about like the internet is a tool for emancipation, you're fighting against these like literal ghosts. You know what I mean? It's, it's these strange shortcut falsehoods that sort of like develop. And then even now, like I, I'll sometimes defend, defend him or defend some of, some of the same principles. I think, I think one of the reasons I gravitated towards some of your work is that it's like you defend certain principles and say, I'm still a leftist and people like, you're constantly sort of like wondering if you're going to get kicked off the kicked off the team yeah. or whatever, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. And, and you do get kicked off the team. Right. But, <laughs> but, but the, it's not like the, the, those people don't go anywhere. Like they're still, they're still around. They're just kind of, uh, they're pushed out of what gets to be associated with the public face of what leftism is. But there's a whole shitload of people like me who are basically leftists and all of their basic kind of, viewpoints and priorities, uh, but who just don't want to do the stupid song and dance that is uh, required of them. And yeah, so all of that is still out there. It's floating around. I mean, there's lots, there's lots of people who fit that description. The question is, like, how is society going to re-equilibrate so that the, how should I put this, like the, like the right now there is this sort of artificial suppression really of what people really think i mean and it's sure. it's pretty systematic i mean yes there are just certain things you're not allowed to say so people don't say them but the beliefs don't go anywhere and so it's like things that are held together by force can only last so long there's right. always going to be like some sort of re-equilibration where you know the true distribution of of attitudes kind of you know finds a way to to re-express itself finds a way to to reassert itself and and some sort of like balance or equilibrium is restored. And so the question is like, what is that going to look like? Um, I mean, in some sense, things like Trump and Brexit are, I think, manifestations of precisely that. I mean, the, yeah. the like our society, Western societies have become way more culturally progressive and quite rapidly so over the past several decades. Um, turns out a lot of people are not so keen on that and they'll do whatever they need to do to uh, reassert that no matter how many people say that, you know, you know, opinion X, Y, and Z is the only possible acceptable, respectable opinion. Like if people don't have that opinion, they're going to reassert themselves. So, I mean, in some sense, I think we're already seeing manifestations of this kind of re-equilibration, but I'm, I'm kind of especially interested in how many people there are like me who are, you know, like I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm not a, I didn't vote for Trump. I'm not like a Brexit supporter. I'm not like, actively kind of um refusing all of the kind of i guess you could call them temptations to kind of take my dissatisfactions with the contemporary left and 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 kind of assert them by by going to the right you know right. to be honest with you to be absolutely honest like i sometimes feel those attractions like i can i can feel sure. i know like i can i can feel like the psychological tendencies that would make someone so frustrated with the contemporary like progressivism that they kind of want to vote for Trump or do something uh, really harmful just to spite the left, you know, like I, I, I get those, those are actually quite real and, and serious and fairly natural kind of like psychological impulses. So I totally get them, but I'm actively refusing to, to take those, to take those options um, because I'm still interested in the possibility of somehow figuring out with other people how to, how to build like emancipatory cultures that, are radically equal or at least you know like 
open to all and and, and amenable to all. It's just so yeah. it's just so confusing. Right. Like how it's so confusing right now. It's just so confusing because all of the people who are on the left today, public like who publicly identify with the left, are not really interested in really radically creative emancipatory projects in some sense. Like, so I don't know. I, there's always this like really frustrating feeling of like all of the words that we've typically used to describe things like left and right. They, they almost like they start to be almost painful in their, in their like illogical nonsensical connotations. Like it, it becomes hard to even string together meaningful, sensible sentences about like, the left is this, the right is this, I'm left, I'm right. Like it, it, it all yeah. starts to kind of melt down, it feels like. Well, this is something I, I, I kind of want, I, I feel like I'm consistently driving at is, is, is uh, you could look at it, you could look at the internet, like, so, so left, right binary, like it's very, it's very of its, of the time that it came, that mm-hmm. it came to be in, like, like the, and it's super literal, like one side of the, one side of the, right. the other side. And the internet should be this thing that like, alters that dimensionality. You know what I mean? Like if, if, if we want to talk about like what it could potentially like it's emancipatory powers and its abilities to like change the, change the game. Like when we're talking about like these sort of like these elements about the left and, you know, and right that just don't sort of like match up. Like what, what I think, what I think has happened. And this is why I've also become more radically anti-capitalist in recent years I mean, even though I, I, I definitely had a period when, when I was younger and then I kind of, I think I kind of became more open to hearing arguments about like the, the benefit, you know, the, how, right. how markets work. And I, I got, you know, you know, I, I mean, I think, I think we're, I think the binary, I think forcing all of these things into a binary uh, that we can argue about over the internet that has no true answer is pure capitalism. I think, I think that just, it serves profit. It's to sort of take the, 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 profit mongers to sort of like take a complex issue and just sort of say, okay, well, we have the internet now. We can make this, instead of being like binary and two-dimensional, we can make it six-dimensional and fractal and like have and have like a, a really interesting conversation about what our mm. world is really made of. You know, if you can take that and you can just say, no, let's let let's let everybody argue about like who's on the left and who's on the right constantly. And it, that's just going to feed their bottom lines, but we're sitting around like going like, where, where's the, where's the emancipation the internet was supposed to offer us? Well, it's, it's right. It's kind of like right here in front of us, but like, nobody's like, we can't sit here and have a conversation about like, what's interesting about Nick Land's thought without worrying about whether or not people on like on the left who we, we feel we associate with, like are going to suddenly think that we have neo-reactionary tendencies or that we want to, you know, let robots sort everybody into, you know, <laughs> racial categories right. according to IQ. I mean, it's very frustrating. <laughs> I I don't know really how to. I think the the huge question is like how do how do we? It's it's hard to. I think you've even talked a bit about about this in terms of like academics and and what academics have to lose essentially and how how much that allows them to be like what what the price is of being truly like sort of radically free anti-institutional, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I, li- I really like a phrase that you said before. Uh, it's kind of stuck in my mind since you said it a few minutes ago when you said that so much of internet discourse is people, I think you said fighting with ghosts. And I think that's like really, you know, that that's very, it's kind of, uh, it's especially to the point when you, because you were talking about 
uh, Christopher Hitchens. So it's it's obvious when you're talking about people who are no longer with us. Uh, but it's, it actually applies more generally to to most of the the little proxy wars that people are constantly having on the internet. Like all of the little points of conflict that pop up, they're all ghosts in some sense. It's like we we're right. we're all spending so much energy in these little proxy wars over concepts and symbols that for the most part are completely meaningless, but they just sort of satisfy our kind of like more base, I guess, psychological tribal needs or whatever. And I think you're also totally right to point out that the historical kind of left-right dimension is, you know, a product of a particular context and of a particular set of institutions and technologies. And that at a certain point, once especially digital communication kind of allows for increasing kind of refinement and fragmentation in, you know, the, the components of different worldviews, uh, we we can at at a certain point just totally dispense with this single dimension. There's just no need to kind of constantly be referring ourselves back to it. Right. So I, I I'm I I'm we're definitely on the same page with all of that, and these are things I've been thinking about for a while. I think the one of the real struggles that comes in is well, really, it is. It kind of goes back to what I was saying before about instrumental rationality. Like to to have a conversation in the world today that has some sort of impact. Like if you want to actually change things with your words or your creations or your projects or your organizations or whatever it might be, like if you want to make a dent in the current organization of things, you have to be strategic about kind of optimizing how you do things to to produce that effect. And that that is kind of like the the problem that capitalism imposes on all on all of social life that we're constantly calculating how to have desired effects in this kind of rationalistic way. So because of that, that is why people are constantly pulled back into having these fights with ghosts. It's like why you have to kind of refer to your position on the left-right spectrum, because that's a price to be paid to even be comprehensible to most people. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think that's that's kind of the problem that we have. It's like, if you wanna, if you wanna actually have an effect, if you wanna be heard and be comprehensible, you have to be constantly relating yourself back to these like molar aggregate categories that might no longer make any sense. They might just be meaningless ghosts, but to be understood and to be valued and recognized and to kind of enter into contemporary status competitions, you have to be able to kind of translate what you're saying or doing into that currency, into that kind into these kind of reigning symbols. So I think I think that's ultimately why people are constantly pulling themselves back into these like perennial but disastrous, useless debates and conflicts and vocabularies. It's because they're trying to participate in like a capitalist culture economy. You know what I mean? Right. But I do yeah. Go on. No, I mean and that's something that's really I, I think get gets to sort of my preoccupation with I've been trying to I've been flirting with the idea of like, I mean, I used to write these long Facebook status updates that were very like they were overly theoretical and intellectual. And I was just like, I should just be writing this down and like putting it together and like see if I can write a book. But oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing that's, that's, that, that is most, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've written here and there, not extensively, but I've, I've written for publication about this political issue or that political issue. And I think, yeah. I think for me, after this, after 2016, it was just like, uh, like what, what am I actually, I, I don't really know 
not only do I not know how to do this, I don't know if it's possible. I don't know if it's possible mm. to sit down and like string together 800 words that are going to matter and why. So what my, my, the fundamental question to me since then, and the one that I'm obsessed with is why doesn't it matter? Like what, what's the machinery that is preventing that's making it impossible for these things that, you know, cause we, it's like we, we could talk mm. all day about like people who have great, like innovative ideas and believe in changing the world and want to, want to change the world with those words and want to be strategic with those words and, and those kinds of things. But like, I sort of fundamentally believe that we are not able to do that right now um, because mm. of this particular dynamic that's been set up between like technology and capitalism. I think it's designed to reduce, to, to sort of use those what, what once were exercises in trying to create meaning and develop uh, ideas and, and create, you know, synthesize ideas, move to a certain place. I believe that, like, there's a financial interest in that essentially not happening. You know what I mean? Like, mm. like I mean, I, 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 I have come to, to see it as a, a sort of meaningless exercise that's, that's sort of, like, you know, literally and figuratively robotic. Um, you know, we mm-hmm. start talking in, like in terms of like, I remember the I remember the moment that I got really creeped out by like some of the CCRU and Nick Land writings and all this sort of stuff. There's a moment I sort of realized that like like when you when you're talking about like sort of like automatic machinery, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. I I do believe that that there's a level that we enter into when we're when we're having these conversations on the internet. That's not really conversation. It's sort of non-conscious. It's sort of like um, and not to say that plenty of like great thought doesn't happen non-consciously. I mean, you sort of like study ideas so that your brain will just sort of like start saying shit that, that, that makes sense. And you're sometimes yeah. fascinated that you just said it, you know, or that's right. Yeah. We, we program ourselves all the time. Exactly. Yeah. So I get, I get that, but I, I mean, I definitely think that there's a kind of, a, a kind of like organism, like sort of like <laughs> that is, um, once functioned could, could, could use, language and, and connection in this way to, to move things to a different place or create a better world that doesn't work right now. Um, yeah. And it's one of the reasons I write less and I try to write more to myself because I just want to figure out that, that particular problem. And it seems to me completely related to how we use the internet, you know, not, not the internet itself, but how we use the internet. And that gets even to a, a, I, I'm, I become fascinated with like fantasies that like using Twitter will become like, it's like, it's like our kind of existence on the internet is, is weirdly insidious in, in that it's man, like a a couple of applications and a couple of companies have kind of convinced, uh, convinced us in a sense, not, not convinced, but I mean, we, we've come to, to believe this is existence, you know what I mean? But like, it's, it's also mm-hmm. possible to just tear yourself away from that and imagine that people you, who use Twitter are like people who play some video game that you don't give a shit about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like the, this, the, the way that this is fully permeated is, is kind of false. It's like, we could actually be doing completely different things. And it, it, it may one day be that using Twitter as, as, as niche and, you know, just for like a certain kind of person. <laughs> but right now we're, we sort of talk about the world, like, like we have to understand politics, whether like discourse or electoral politics through like how it's being carried out on two platforms. You know what I mean? 
And that's crazy to me because those platforms are not designed for anything but profit. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can kind of interpret what you were just saying as similar to what I was saying before about how it is possible to kind of break from the instrumental rationality orientation. Because I think instrumental rationality is what makes us all constantly be relating ourselves back to these to these like molar aggregate network uh, definitions of things. You know, like you're kind of you're kind of pointing out the possibility that, you know, we could just stop taking all of this kind of macro level conversations on the on these on these networks. We could just stop taking them seriously. We could just kind of create walls around our subjective experiences and perhaps you know the the small circles of other individuals and groups that we that we choose to include in our ecosystem that we call reality like we can we can create boundaries around that in which everything beyond a certain wall is just considered to be as you said like about as meaningful to you as like a bunch of idiot strangers playing like a stupid video game that you couldn't care less about it is possible to to i think to create that but i think the the crucial pitfall that people fall into is is they find it impossible to like not feel as if it all matters so much you know like what people are saying about you on twitter like the normal like an an average person like really just cannot prevent themselves from from caring about you know the 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 larger social verdict and right. i think one of the reasons that is is because well you know the opposite there is an opposite to instrumental value and I think the opposite of instrumental value is what we might call intrinsic value. And this is precisely what capitalism has totally evacuated human experience. You know, the, the capital, or, I'm sorry, capitalism has completely evacuated human experience of intrinsic values. In other words, like things and practices and ideas that we value purely for their own sake. So the things that we do that, that we really believe in doing not because they fulfill some larger value, not because of their consequences, not because of you know how they kind of factor into some cost-benefit analysis or fail to, but simply because one believes that they are truly and genuinely worth doing for their own sake. Like that is precisely the type of thinking and feeling that modern human beings today have have almost completely lost the capacity to do. And I, and I think that is a pretty direct result of just kind of the the spread and modernization of of capitalism and, and, and its kind of domination of society. But we can, we can like, we can cultivate these things. And I think find like, if people can find bases for like deep intrinsic value, then you just lock into what's intrinsically valuable. And then you build worlds around that. I mean, one of the cool things about the internet is it does help. It does allow you if you want to, and you're purposeful about it, you can kind of like create your own world. Part of the whole problem of political polarization today is Precisely that, you know, like the left and the right generally are, are kind of verging off into fundamentally different realities. Well, I think that we can go one step further and create, you know, even smaller kind of atomic realities that are actually geared towards our our flourishing, maybe. You know, I think that this is kind of why I'm interested in the idea of patchwork and kind of Nick Land and Moldbug and, and all the stuff that they talk about with exit and and you know, this idea of a patchwork. I think it's a promising way to think about the world because if I think you it's also realistic. what's that? I think it's also realistic. Right. Yes. It, yes. Gone. 
I, I mean, I think fragmentation, like when, when those guys talk about fragment, when you, when you think about like, like what, what are the failures that we're, what, what is, what are we witnessing sort of on a macro level right now? It's a, it's, I mean, it's the failure, the, the inability of like a decentralized, like an existence driven by decentralizing fragmenting technology to hold together centralized, un, like less fragmented institutions and nations right. and, and groups of people and things like that. So if, if we're going to continue using these and we probably using computers, <laughs> using the internet, <laughs> and we definitely are then like, yeah, it's gonna, it's like patchwork fragmentation. That's almost, it's almost like, uh, it's, it doesn't feel like an ideology to me. It feels like just like a likelihood. <laughs> right. It definitely seems to be attuned. It definitely seems to be a theory that is attuned to actually occurring dynamics. And there's something, yeah, very uh, attractive about that in its realism. But I mean, I think I remain somewhat optimistic or let's just say much more optimistic than most people who I guess I'm kind of, you know, exchanging ideas with at this point on basically the idea of like a radical left patchwork or a, a, a communist patch. I actually, you might be interested to hear that I actually just last week finished recording a podcast with Nick Land. And it was really, really interesting because towards the end, I kind of, uh, I kind of floated to him an idea that I've had for a while, which I've been kind of trying to to work on, you know, in, in piece by piece anyway, about, you know, the viability of, of a communist patch. Like if we do see patchwork as, as a kind of political form that perhaps might tend to unfold in the not too near future, if we were to see that, I think you can make a pretty good case that at least one of the most successful patches would be organized along communist lines. Like, I think that if you are a radical leftist and you believe in something like, you know, some intelligent and nuanced form of communism or something like that, then like, if you believe that, then you should believe that there, that there is a way to engineer it that would actually be more functional for a human community than alternatives. And so I, sure. I kind of like the idea of patchwork as a challenge because it's sort of, if you're interested in radical left ideas, it kind of forces you to think, okay, well, show me the engineering diagram of how it would actually sustain itself and think about doing it as a kind of small scale experiment in political sovereignty. And yeah, yeah. I think it just so happens that people aren't really thinking about that because these ideas tend to be kind of being generated from a kind of anti-left-wing perspective right now. But if left-wing people weren't so allergic to it, I think like you could see extraordinary uh, adva intellectual advancements in what a kind of 21st century communist politics might look like along the model of, of a kind of patchwork model. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think that's like, it goes back to what we were saying about like the constrictions or the, the difficulties of, of, of sort of expressing heterodoxy uh, because at the end of the day, mm -hmm. you have, in, in my view, and I it, maybe I'm maybe I'm not familiar enough with their projects because I haven't read "Inventing the Future" from from cover to cover, and I, I you know, like I, I know a lot of these ideas, and I know them. Some of them I've, I've I have read, and some of them I haven't. But in my view, like a lot of the contemporary sort of like uh, futurist left or whatever you used to call itself, left accelerationism, is obviously derived from the ideas that uh, ideas that Nick Land had a huge hand in expressing and the idea to me that like now if he's going to speak at an art gallery the left deplatforms him is bizarre 
You know what yeah. I mean? Um, yeah. So. Definitely. It's complicated. It's very bizarre. And, so. Oh, go on. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to say, um, like, this has been a super interesting and far-flung uh, exploration of a bunch of uh, related ideas, and we've gone off on so many tangents. It's been really fascinating and, and fun. Um, yes. I'm just, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about how to maybe take all of the different strands that we've that we've covered, and maybe attempt some sort of kind of closing period where we, I don't know, maybe take uh, some some attempts at not necessarily summarizing the conversation, but more like I guess I would be curious to know after these different experiences that you've had, you know, the mixed emotions that you've had about left-wing activism and getting into it and then kind of getting out of it, but still remaining generally kind of left-leaning in your orientations and, uh, you know, the different experiences you've had with politics being really important, but then music being more important and, you know, theory being important, but then music being more important, you know, these kinds of themes that we've discussed and these, you know, different experiences and views that you've had over, over the years, I wonder just if you could maybe say a little bit about where where you're at right now in your life and, and how you see the relationships between these different things. Like, I wonder if, are you sort of, because it, it sounds like you're you're still kind of a left-wing guy, but you're, you stepped away a while ago from kind of organized left-wing politics, it sounds like. Do you, do yeah. you see your commitment to music and, and a kind of creative aesthetic vocation? Do you see that as related to perhaps your your more matured views of politics? And maybe is it something like, you know, in your disillusionment with, you know, the hypocrisy of organized radicalism? Do you see kind of the creative life as as something that is in some ways like a uh, your way of like following through on a certain kind of like cultural radicalism that you have? Or I, I wonder if you see if you see the world in, in that sort of way at all. Well, I, no, I'm, it's hard to say. I guess there's there's connections, but they're never conscious. I guess, um, yeah. You know, for instance, like I said, uh, I became preoccupied with this particular question about like how can we move beyond the impasse that we have in terms of like like technology, capitalism, and communication about politics. Right. So I've been obsessively reading about that over the last year or so, and. Meanwhile, you know, I'm in this band with the, you know, like I was saying, like Afghan bandmate, and Mm -hmm. we're working on a a new record right now. And there's a way that that those ideas sort of inform, I mean, there's almost like an an imagination that developed from that reading that is like, informs the creative, like what we're making, like my end of like what we're making right now. Um, Okay. But there's no, there's no, I would say that there's no um, didacticism to it. There's no like point I'm trying to really get across. I think the experience, you know, I, I often, I've, I've made the point a couple of times, like, like the experience of that band is, is like the white male atheist with the female Afghan, you know, uh, uh-huh. you know, a uh, child, child of a re- refugee family. Uh, you know, that band is perpetually an experience, like it, it, I had learned about cultural appropriation through that. I, I was the guy who would be like, you know, you're just calling everything that's cultural mixture, cultural appropriation. But we've dealt with like people, uh, one person in particular using 
ideas that that were hers and that came from her culture that would have made you know that and and being very successful with them to to the, to the exclusion to the to the point where it looked like they were hers you know what i mean so i understand i i i these the the mm. creative process is it constantly reflects and and is in dialogue with the politics but um i try mm. i guess i don't try to consciously fuse them anymore it's 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 experiential i guess and i guess if you want to know my where i stand as far as like making it like making a cult like a cultural contribution or or, or using cultural politics towards an end point i would say i'm extremely extremely bleak and pessimistic about both music and politics okay um, sure. i mean my, i i couldn't say i i i am I, I'm not a pessimist, per, but or, or I'm not I'm I'm not somebody who doesn't have a hope for the future or a vision or, or you know interested in keeping on trying. But um, I I think everything's very bleak. <laughs> the music world's very bleak. The political landscape's very bleak, and I don't um, yeah I don't know that I have a a, a plan or or a know how I'm gonna mm-hmm. how, how I I'm I'm searching. I guess is what I'm saying. I I don't. I, if you'd asked me a, a similar question 10 years ago, I would have given you the most like Bono 1983 idealistic, you know, we're going to change the world, man, kind of thing. But um, I don't know. Yeah. No anymore. <laughs> no, I, I, I hear all of that actually loud and clear because I mean, in some sense, I, I also like the idea of searching and, and that way of, you know, like I, at the end of the day, I sometimes think that the most radical thing that anyone can do is just try their damn hardest to figure out like what is what is true you know uh and i so i mean as an intellectual i tend to think about it in those terms but you know the searching process that characterizes artistic endeavor is you know artists might not think about it as trying to seek the truth but i think it's quite the same thing i mean it's like i think i think that the most radical thing anyone can do at any time and place is like search for whatever they think it's most important to find, <laughs> you know, as an intellectual, to me, that means something like the truth to, to musicians or to painters, it, it's going to be in slightly different terms. But like, to me, so long as you're engaged in like a radically genuine, authentic, and yes, I, I like those terms. I, I know they're a bit unfashionable, but I'm somewhat, I think, Sartrean and in my interest in authenticity, I think, I think that these ideas actually are, are essential personally. And personally, I think that so long as one is engaged in a genuine, authentic search process for whatever is most valuable as far as they can see, then ultimately like that is, I think I, I tend to think that's the most radical politically that anyone can be, you know? And I think you have, a, I think you have like the appropriately modest viewpoint where you kind of, you know, you're not making any claims to your like creative work, having some sort of direct didactic political import or like you know you you don't have any you know naive belief that you're gonna somehow directly change the world through what you're doing but i mean i genuinely believe that precisely that modesty combined with just a genuine effort to to figure out things the best that you can like if everyone just did that that would actually be revolutionary cultural conditions i think no i agree and i and i think i think you hit on something that rings true for me because i mean i think when i you know, for instance, when I, not to flatter you, but you know, when I, when I, when I 
came when I found, I find like a tweet, you know, somebody like writing some, some of the things that, that you've written, it's like, it's refreshing. And it's, it's like, it's, um, it, there's a novel, like there's a free, there's a sort of, I get the same rush from it as I get from hearing a song that feels like born out of like specific, unique, like, a you know, free place, you know what I mean? Right. And I, I, I think they are entirely similar. Yeah, yes. exactly. Well, and thank you for the kind words. Of course, I, I, it really means a lot to me. I appreciate that. But I think like, you know, that, so that, that's cool to hear that, you know, I, I'm, I can possibly have that effect on someone. And but the, what's really cool about it is the much larger point, which is that it's, it's a replicable model. You know what I mean? Like it's not, all it really is, is, having the courage basically to pursue as hard as you can, whatever seems most valuable to you. You know, it's like once you, once you like have kind of like absurd highfalutin kind of like delusions of grandeur about changing the world or, you know, things like that, then you're almost certainly going to be, that's evidence that you're probably off course. Um, But the, but the (laughs) irony is, and it's a pretty beautiful irony is that like, if you actually just let go of any idea of, you know, changing the world or saving people or teaching people, you know, like all of these kind of like uh, impressive highfalutin goals that that people somehow always get into their heads. If you can just have the modesty to actually give up on all of those goals and simply commit yourself to doing what you think is most interesting and valuable and you don't let other people talk you down from it and you don't compromise, like you're a revolutionary simply for that reason. And sure. you're going to have liberatory revolutionary effects on on people maybe only in small doses because we're all just individual units in this massive ecosystem that we all live in but as you note that's contagious like it it has real effects on the other nodes that you're related to uh, in the network and like right you know, that's where viral dynamic that's where viral dynamics and kind of network effects become really really explosively powerful so yeah this is my kind of this is kind of where I'm at right now in thinking about how revolutionary politics might look today and its relationship between kind of intellectual life and, you know, more creative, like cultural avenues today. Um, I kind of just summarized my view. I mean, I, th- I kind of think that like anything that's kind of like organized and institutionalized and claims to be about political change or making the world a better place or anything like that almost is always doomed. <laughs> Personally, I, te- I tend right. to think. Um, but like when you find anyone who's like authentically searching, as you say, or, you know, just, just working their hardest to do something that is big and valuable and important to them and they're not compromising and they're not taking shit from people and they're just doing whatever they have to do to do what they believe in. That to me is revolutionary politics today. And I think the more we can understand how that works, like the more we understand the real sociological mechanisms of that sort of phenomenon, I think the more we can kind of give serious political significance to that sort of, uh, you know, like political activists tend to call this sort of stuff derisively. They call it like lifestyle politics and, and shit like this. Activists uh, have a bunch of, way of ways of like dismissing this kind of like model that I'm interested in. But mm-hmm. I think it tends to be just because they're like boring, resentful, uh, like bi- like bitter, <laughs> bitter people who are just like very afraid of, of, of living and, and it's, and it's risks. It's, inc- um, it's incredible yeah. how difficult it is. It can be to have leftist values, but to interact with leftist culture <laughs> because, yeah, they, because they, it is, I mean, that, that's, 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 you know, you get into the activist realm and it, it can be a lot like that. But I, I think I zero in a lot on uh, your, your use of the word courage, because I think, 
I think if there's anything that I'm pretty certain about in any facet of, of like politics, culture, political change through culture, the way forward, it's that um, I sort of see uh, not the internet, but the platforms that we've come to, to use as, and the way that we use them as conformity machines. And I think that they discourage current. I think that they actively mm. cultivate a kind of timid uh, a fear. Uh, and I think anything that's going to happen, that's going to be, that's going to break things open or change anything, whether on a small or a large scale is going to be the result of simply people who are courageous enough to, to do some, you know, and I, it's funny. It's like, I, it's, it's one of these things I was talking the other day about like hearing a song that you've heard a thousand times, but for the first time, because that happened to me with a talking head song the other day, like I never cared mm-hmm. about the talking heads. And all of a sudden I heard like that song once in a lifetime for the first time, because I've heard it a billion times, but I heard it for the first time. And it's like, you can hear people like talk about the importance of courage to politics all a million times. But like, I feel like, I feel like I've reached a point in my personal experience and it's, this is also true of music, um, where it's sort of unbelievable how many times you've heard that and not really heard it. Um, but I think mm. that, that that more so than than ever, I think I I believe and I understand that like that's the key. <laughs> that's that's going to be the character. That's going to be the the catalyst. You know, the character of of what whatever is to come. Interesting. So, cool. Yeah. Just, no. I- just cultivating courage to just not be so scared of, of what's going to happen to you or how people are going to label you or, you know, whether it's going to work even, you know, there's like all this, there's this really oppressive to me, like kind of, um, uh, over determination mm-hmm. of strategy on the left right now about, you know, how, how can we have a Trump or, you know, maybe we should get an Oprah and all, you know, <laughs> crazy shit, right. like just, you know, and, but that's not courage, you know, that's, that's, that's the most, conservative almost like capitalistic way to sort of look at bottom lines look at what's you know this is what made money before let's do something like that you know what i mean and it's that right interesting it's no, not going to yeah. move any that's exactly right i mean that's exactly what i meant before with the idea of instrumental rationality i think that's exactly it uh and in some sense courage is like anti-instrumental action on the world yes. you know it's like doing something it's doing something because you believe it's intrinsically worth doing uh even though it's very likely going to kind of be a net negative in terms of it's like you know in terms of the earthly rewards or punishments that you get it's probably going to be not worth its weight but for for, but for intrinsic reasons it is worth it to you and you do it anyway that that's like the criterion of like meaningful you know radical gestures or operations on on reality so uh i guess i guess it makes sense that you and i uh would have found each other online and become friends online given that i guess we there, there's a lot of overlap in how we see these things then yeah, for sure <laughs> i was thinking the same yeah that's awesome man well this has been a really interesting and pretty wild romp through a bunch of things um do you i'm curious do, do you want to maybe you can kind of have the last word do you want to tell us maybe a little bit about like what your what what's what's in store for you in the near future like what are your what what's really got you pumped for the next like few years like what are you kind of most excited about doing just personally or however you want to put that oh man uh i (laughs) i'm excited to hear these uh 
mixes of the new Vara record. I'm excited to read the Xenofeminism book by Helen Hester. I'm excited to uh, to survive um, a year or two. <laughs> that's, Very good. That's literally about as far as it goes. That's cool, man. That's a good attitude. <laughs> I like it. Uh, did you have any other kind of anything you wanted to add that you didn't get to to squeeze into this? Um, you feel free to, you know, have any last words if you want to add anything we didn't get to cover. No, I don't think so, man. It was a, it was a great great chat. Hope we get to do it again. Yeah, man. It was it was really good to get to know you better. Like, uh, I there's so many people online who I'm kind of like friends with online, but I don't really know shit about their lives or who they are or, or what. Um, so. It was, it was really cool. Thank you for sharing like all of your experiences and, uh, yeah, Definitely. giving up. Yeah. It's, it's been really interesting and edifying to, to hear about how you see things and, uh, yeah, man, good to, good to get to know you better. Likewise. Maybe we'll hang out in the UK when I get over there. Yeah, for sure. Or when I'm, maybe our paths will cross in the Northeast of the U S sometime or something like that. But, uh, yeah. I'm sure I, I suspect it'll probably happen eventually. So I look forward to that for sure. Likewise. All right, Josh, thanks again, man. Take it easy. And I'll, I'll talk to you. Well, when I talk to you. Yeah, take care. All right, see you, dude.